I appreciated uh, Adam's introduction to this little mini-series. As we've looked in uh, Genesis, we, we start to see the beginnings of these little threads that run then through the rest of Scripture, that Scripture develops uh, as it goes through. And uh, obviously, we can't go much further than we're going to go today, right? Because this is the, we're going to look at the end. Uh, but one of the things that we start to see as we look at Genesis uh, and this thread that runs through the heart of Scripture is that God is a God of love. And so what we wanted to do is think about God's heart of love for His people over the next three weeks. And specifically, the way it expresses, the way God expresses that heart of love in His desire to dwell with His people. This is a theme that we see, and we're going to look at that today. Uh, next week... Will is going to help us think about how God's heart of love for His people expresses itself in His pursuit of our joy in Him. And then finally, Adam's going to think about how God's heart of love expresses itself in His absolute faithfulness to His people and to His promises. I don't know if you know this, but the way that you think about God shapes everything else in your life. Your vision of God shapes how you think about everything, how you think about the world, how you think about your relationships. It shapes everything. Uh, if you don't know me, uh, you're about to find out a little about me. I like to play golf. Uh, and one of the reasons I like to play golf is that becomes my connection to the world around me. And here's what I mean. Whenever I play golf with guys, I like to try to start conversations with them. I want to find out who they are. I want to find out what they're like. And ultimately, I want to find out what they think about God. And so I try to start spiritual conversations with guys as we're playing. It's four hours. By the way, if you don't play golf, don't start playing it, okay? It's too much time and it's not worth it. But anyway, this part of it I really like. Uh, this part of it I really like, being able to try to, to have spiritual conversations with people uh, as we go around in that four-hour period of time. And I remember last year having a conversation with a guy, and it was great. We, we, you know, we really got to talk about some things in his, his life. And then afterwards, we were having uh, coffee uh, upstairs in the clubhouse, and we revisited the conversation and so I asked him, I said, so what, what's your vision of God? And this is a man that had grown up in Ireland, in Catholic Ireland. And I asked him, I said, so what is your vision of, of, of God? What do you think God's like? And he described what I can only describe as a devil. He described a God that in his mind was uh, kind of an ogre in the sky that set up in the sky and threw lightning bolts down at people when they didn't do what they were supposed to do. This was a God who, who took from his people. Uh, he, he, from his creation, he, he took from them. He, he, he demanded certain things of them, and when they failed, he broke them. And I just said to him, I said, look, I said, I think what you've just described is the devil, and I said, you know what? I don't blame you for rejecting that God. I would reject that God as well. But I said, that's not the God of the Bible. 
That's not the God that we see in the scriptures. Now, maybe you're here today and that's your vision of God, that he's a cruel, domineering taskmaster that's looking for every simple fault in you so that he can uh, dig into it and make you feel bad about it. Or maybe that was your experience and something happened and you started to see God differently. But look, the way that you think about God impacts everything around you. It impacts how you think about maybe your parents. It impacts how you think about other relationships that you might have. How you think about church. How you think about the scriptures. And what we want to help you see today is God's heart of love for his people. And so we're going to begin by looking at the end We're going to begin by looking at the the end of all things, at this vision that John has of eternity and what eternity is going to be like. This is a glimpse of the other side of the mountain, as it were. This is what we are looking ahead and forward to. Now, so many of us have these mistaken notions about what eternity Uh, is going to be like. Maybe it's going to be just like here, but in the clouds or something. Uh, Or or that we're going to be kind of disembodied angel spirits that just kind of hover around and somehow manage to play harps. If you're disembodied, I don't know how you play a harp. But but sometimes that's how we think about what eternity is going to be. Disembodied, kind of floating around up there somewhere. Or maybe your vision of eternity is it's going to be a long, boring church service. And you kind of wonder, well, do I really want to go there then? Uh, all kinds of mistaken notions. But, but you see, oftentimes the, the way that we think about heaven uh, is, is incorrect. Because heaven is, as we tend to think about it, is not forever. It's an intermediate state. It's the eternal state. Represented in the new heavens and the new earth that we are really looking forward to. And it is all very physical. It is real reality, as C.S. Lewis described it. It's Genesis 1 expanded, where God created and he said it was very good. And it's here in this eternal state that God, driven by love, is going to make all things new so that he might dwell with his people. Now, John, in Revelation 21, 22, John is going to use the most glorious language possible to describe what reality is like in this eternal state. But listen, even then, it is a shadow that we can't even fathom. Even with the best language we have to think about it. The experience of dwelling with God eternally in this state is a mere shadow that we can't even comprehend. Uh, It's like when um, uh, my kids were younger and I would try to explain to them that we don't just get money from a cash machine, right? Kids thought, okay, if I go to a cash machine, money just comes out. And they couldn't comprehend economics and how currency actually worked. 
And in the same way, we can't comprehend what God has in store. And so Revelation 21, 22 give us a glimpse of what eternity is like. And it isn't heaven as we think about it today as this place that God dwells out there. You know, the invisible heavens where God is, is dwelling now. It is so much better than that. And that is why the gospel is good news. See, listen, the point of the gospel is not merely forgiveness of sin. Forgiveness of sin is necessary. But the gospel, the good news, is about so much more than that. And so here's what we want to do. We want to catch a glimpse of what God is really like because he is so much more than we often think. The good news contained in the gospel of Jesus is not simply about getting to a new place. The good news is much more about a person. And so as we think about these verses that point us to the end of all things, I want us to see that God is the gospel. That the offer of the gospel is God's offer of himself driven by love. Now the promise of the Bible is ultimately the promise of God's loving presence with his people. And so the first thing for us to consider is that everything God does is driven by his love and his desire to share that love with his creatures. Think about creation. In creation, uh, his desire to share the love that is experienced within the Godhead with his creatures that he's made. This is what motivated him to create in the first place. As Jonathan Edwards said, that, that, that God seeks his glory uh, in seeking that his excellent perfections should be known and esteemed and loved and delighted in by his creatures. This is why God creates. It's an outflow of the love that he is experiencing within the Godhead that he longs for his creatures to experience as well. In the fall, as we saw it in Genesis 3, we see love as he places the punishment for Adam and Eve's sin on another. Remember, he clothes them with animal skins. And remember, he promises that the, that the serpent is going to be crushed by a future seed of the woman. With his people Israel, he gives them uh, his law as an act of love. Now, maybe you don't think about it that way, uh, but God giving the law is not motivated by a desire to keep his people, Israel, as far away from him as possible. It's just the opposite. His giving them the law is an act of love that he might have them as close to him as possible, given their sin. He gives them his law in love. Think about redemption in Christ, the ultimate act of love. Indeed, this is where we see visible proof that God is love as God the Son dies for sinners. The Son is the outshining 
of the glory of God's love. And we know that because in the Gospel of John, John tells us that the Son is most glorified, that the Son most looks like what God is like when He is dying on the cross for those that don't deserve it. We know what love is as Jesus, the eternal Son, dies for our sin. And listen, even in God's judgment of sin, we see God's love on display as He is committed to destroying finally and completely the one thing that keeps His creatures from enjoying His love fully, sin. He is committed to destroying it for the good of His creatures. Who love him. In fact, to not judge sin in this way would not be loving. And so he judges. And this is uh, in all of this so that his people might know and experience his love fully in his presence. That's his delight. That's what he is moving towards. And that's what we see in Revelation 21. Come to fulfillment. The storyline of Scripture has brought us to this moment in Revelation 21, verses 1 to 3. John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. This new city is this recreated heaven and earth where God's presence fills all of creation as God comes to dwell with his people. And this idea, uh, th- this idea of the, the triune God establishing His presence among a people is one of the main themes in Scripture. It's one of the main themes that we see throughout. Think about the Garden of Eden, where God dwells with Adam and Eve face to face. In the wilderness of the Old Testament, He dwells in the tabernacle. And later uh, in Israel, he dwells in the temple, in the Holy of Holies. God the Son, Jesus, dwelt among us in the incarnation. As a church, as believers in Jesus, we have the promised Holy Spirit, God dwelling with us in his spirit. And so here in the end, God and his people are united together forever. And just like John does earlier in the book of Revelation when he thinks about Babylon, that wicked city, the new creation here is presented as both a place and a people. So it's a fitting place for the bride of Christ to dwell. It's adorned with splendor. The whole place is awash with light, the light of God's glory reflecting all throughout the city. And at the same time, 
representative of the living temple. We see in this image God's people as well. Adorned with righteousness as precious stones. We see this language of, of God's people as the temple. We see it in different places in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, verse 16, we see it. Uh, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that the Spirit dwells in you? Uh, we see it in Ephesians 2 where Paul says that we are being built up into this living temple uh, in Christ. And this promise of God's presence is ultimately realized here as God finally tabernacles or dwells with his people. See, the beauty of the eternal state, the beauty of what John is describing is the fact that God is there. Uh, this announcement from this angel in verse 3 of chapter 21, announcing the presence of God filling this new city, this new creation. Now, of course, God is with us spiritually now, right? We, we know that. He dwells with us through his spirit. But in this time, in this day, his dwelling will be true and full in every respect. Physical and absolute. We with our resurrected bodies dwelling with him eternally in his presence. If you look over in chapter 22 verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. The glorious throne will be in the midst of God's people. And we will see his face. Remember again, Adam and Eve were barred from seeing his face after the fall, weren't they? As they were dismissed from the garden. Moses could not see his face in Exodus 33 when God reveals his character to him on the mountain. And though Jesus revealed God the Father to us in the incarnation, it was a veiled deity. It was veiled in some way. But in this day, at the end of days, we will see God face to face. Now, we don't appreciate this because we're, we're finite, right? We're, we're limited in this sense. When, when Isaiah the prophet catches a glimpse of the, the tail end of God's glory uh, in Isaiah chapter 6, what does he do? He falls down as though dead. You know, anytime in the scriptures when we see a human encountering uh, even a, a, a veiled sense of, of, of God and his deity and his uh, angelic presence, it's so magnificent that, that they fall as though dead. And here we are, one day, we will be in his very presence. In his presence for eternity. Face to face with his glorious love forever and ever. So we hear that now and, you know, we kind of look at our watches. Or we go, man, what do I have to do later today? I got so much going on. Because we cannot comprehend fully 
all that that means. When on that day, God's glorious presence will fill everything. Notice in Revelation 21, 22, there's no architectural container. He's going to fill all of creation. Everything is going to be filled with his presence. In fact, the whole of creation here in these chapters is pictured by John as a, a renewed holy of holies. We won't read it, but in, in verses 15 through uh, 27, we see these references back to what the Holy of Holies was in the Old Testament. Remember, in the Old Testament, this is where God's presence dwelt, was in the Holy of Holies. And so we see these descriptions of this new creation. It's going to be shaped as a cube, just like the Holy of Holies. It's going to be filled with gold, just like the Holy of Holies. And the holy place was layered with gold. There is no temple in verse 22 of Revelation 21. I saw no temple in the city. Why? Because its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. There's no temple because all of creation becomes the temple, the place where God dwells with his people. Remember, the Holy of Holies was off limits, wasn't it? It was off limits for everybody except one guy, the high priest, one time a year could go in and be in the presence of God. In fact, he would go in and as the earth was God's footstool, he would literally be just kind of at the feet of God. Incense burning so as, to, so as the whole room was filled with smoke and God remaining, in a sense, invisible. But here, God dwells face to face with his people. See, this is the fulfillment of everything that God had done before. The whole city is a holy of holies because God's presence fills everything. And John tells us that everything is clean. There is no sin. We just read that in Revelation 22, verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed. Everything is clean. So in 22, verse 3, we function as priests giving worship to God. We've been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. Sin isn't even possible because it's been banished from God's presence. And notice in verse 4 of 22, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. We will be perfectly his. The high priest as part of his priestly garment had a turban and on the turban was written the name of the Lord God. And we will all be priests in God's presence. His name on our foreheads. We belong to Him. This new city is also pictured as a renewed and expanded Garden of Eden. Listen to the imagery in chapter 22, verse 1. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne and of the Lamb through the middle of the street. On either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. 
They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light and they shall reign forever and ever. Remember, as Russell talked the last couple of weeks about Genesis 10 and 11, and made reference to the creation and God's desire that these image bearers would bear fruit and multiply and thus expand the garden of God's presence so that his presence and his image bearers might fill the earth. This is the fulfillment of that. Where in Revelation 22, in this new creation, we see a new garden that has expanded to fill the whole earth, the whole of creation. God dwelling with his people. And so verse 1, this river of the water of life flows directly from God's throne. And God and the Lamb and their throne are right there along with the tree of life. There's life everywhere in this city, temple, garden. As life's very source and presence is there in its midst. In verse 2, there is abundance and, and variety. Those in that garden city are never bored, are, are never unsatisfied with God and His presence. There's no lack of any physical or spiritual thing. Fully healed. Fully redeemed. Guys, maybe you have a full head of hair. Who knows? There is no longer anything accursed. But just notice in all of this, just notice that what makes this place beautiful is the fact that God is there. Everything radiates His glory. The glory of His love is everywhere present. And so God here in this place offers the gift of His presence for us to enjoy forever because that's the greatest outpouring of his love. The best that God can give is not money. It's not food. The best that God can give is himself and the experience of who he is. And so we will, as Richard Sibbs, the old Puritan said, we will feast on his delights forever and ever and ever, as those united by the Spirit to the Son will share in the Father's love for the Son eternally. And I think continually growing in our experience and understanding of that eternal love. Well, but let's think just a little bit more about what God's presence means for His people. The reality is that God's presence means unending peace and joy for his people. And so there is here in these chapters the promised end of everything associated with the old world. Everything associated with the old world is, is gone, has been destroyed. It's kind of a, it's a burning of the ships, uh, as it were. It's, it's gone. So, so everything that brings decay and sickness and pain and disappointment is absent for good. Notice in, in chapter 21, verse 1, there is no more sea. The sea throughout scriptures is symbolic of the evil and the chaos of this age. And it's gone. Sin has been utterly destroyed for good. We saw that in chapter 20 of Revelation. And see, this is what God is doing in history, ultimately destroying sin 
So that in this eternal state, you see the enjoyment of God by free creatures who cannot sin because it's been dealt with. You're not going to be a robot, but you will be in God's presence, able to enjoy fully his love and all that comes with that without the possibility of sin. That there's no more groaning uh, in this new Eden. There's nothing left of the curse. Uh, the gates, uh, Paul, or John tells us, the gates are never closed and there is no more night. Why do you close city gates? It's to keep bad people out. But outsiders are gone from this new creation, this new heavens and new earth. And the gates are always open. It's always light because God's presence illuminates everything. Uh, incidentally, in 21 verse 8, we see the people, the outsiders who are not there, who because of their sin have been banished to the lake of fire in chapter 20. There's nothing left to fear of sin and evil. In verse 4, God takes his beloved in his arms and he wipes away every tear. There is no more mourning, there is no more death, there is no more sickness. But even more than the banishment of sin, there's ultimate delight in his presence. God is jealous for his glory. Because his glory is the light of his love. And he wants us to experience that. See, God knows, God knows that his love is the only thing that can satisfy us. And so he wants to remove everything that gets in the way of that. So think about sin. Sin is the deception that we can make ourselves happy apart from God. So we rob him uh, of the glory of being that all-satisfying one for us. But here, the effects of sin are gone. And this is ultimate delight that we can't fathom. And this isn't something that God does begrudgingly. Again, all of this is driven by his heart of love for his people. He longs for us to experience this. Incidentally, if, if you think eternity is going to be a long, boring worship service, it's because you don't understand this idea of love. That we will worship God forever and ever. But that we will worship God forever and ever by enjoying the all-satisfying nature of his presence with us. So we will worship God by experiencing this outpouring of his love eternally. That's how we worship. It isn't sitting and singing. No offense, Chris, you guys do great. But it's not just sitting and singing worship songs over and over again or listening to a sermon for a thousand years. We worship God by enjoying the all-satisfying nature of his love and his presence with us. Everything we will do 
will be pure worship because everything we do will be fueled by a perfect delight in his love. And so think about in the Garden of Eden, work was worship before the fall. Work was worship. And so think about what will we do in this eternal state? I don't know. I think we'll probably do whatever we want to do. Because everything our bodies could do will be pure and unfettered worship as we delight ourselves in God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, we can eat and drink to the glory of God. Even here, even now. And in the eternal state, imagine everything that we would do being pure and unfettered worship as we experience his love. So why does John write this text? What what do we do today with this text that is oriented so far in the future? John's point in these chapters isn't to kind of wow us with heavenly descriptions or difficult language. John wants his readers and he wants us to rest and rejoice in God's presence with us now. To stand firm and confident in faith now as we await the day when everything will be fulfilled. And so in 21, chapter 21, verse 6, he says, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. God calls himself the beginning and the end to fill us with confidence. If God is the beginning and the end, if he is sovereign over the beginning and sovereign over the end, then he is sovereign over the middle as well. This gives us confidence in this life. So what what do we do with such a, a vision of what is to come? Get a head start on delighting in God's presence with you now. Because that's what you're going to be doing for eternity. So get a head start on it by delighting in God's loving presence with you now. The reality is that God's love changes us. If we understand that God loves us and we see that love lived out in the death of Jesus for us, That vision of God cannot help but change us and make us different. This is what the Spirit does. The Spirit reminds us of the cross. And in reminding us of the cross, the Spirit works to make us different. And that happens, as we say so often, that happens through these ordinary means of grace. We cannot see Jesus or become like him apart from the scriptures, apart from prayer, apart from the community of faith, because that's where we see the love of God lived out in Jesus. And that's what the Spirit uses to transform us and make us new. And this vision of love motivates us. Remember, God is even now working this expansion project, right? He's using his people uh, to to go out, his, his people who have delighted and trusted in his love through Christ, to go out and share that love with those around them. And as people come to faith, that community of believers is expanded to fill this world. 
And so we share his love and the message of his love in Christ. And in that way, his fame and the presence of his love grows even now. God loves his people. This is, we see this all through the scriptures. And that heart of love for his people moves him to give himself in Christ. But then to move heaven and earth in order that his people might be forever satisfied in his presence. So we look forward to the fullness of that. We look forward to the day when we experience that. But listen, we can bask in that even now. Because God's presence is with those who believe through the Spirit. We can bask in His love and His all-satisfying love for us even now. As we see Christ reflected in the Scriptures and in our community. So get a head start on enjoying and delighting yourself in the presence of God with you because that's what we'll be doing forever. My friend at the golf course with that distorted view of God, he, he didn't buy what I was selling, but that's okay. I pray for more opportunities to have more conversations with him. I wish he would have seen that his vision of God was distorted and he had missed the God of love that was in the Bible. I wish he would have seen that God wanted good for him through Christ. Now here's the thing. There's two sides to the coin. In order for God to judge and deal completely with sin, he has to deal with it in us as well. The good news is that he did that in Christ, in Jesus who took all of our sin upon the cross. That if we would simply turn to him in faith and believe that that death he died, he died for us, that we might have life. Well, then all of this becomes really good news, doesn't it? We receive the indwelling spirit. We receive God's presence with us. We look forward to this day that we've just described. But for those who refuse that offer, their sin is still on their shoulders. And God will require it of them. And so look, if you're here today and you've never trusted in the gift that God has given in Christ, Maybe today would be the day that you would receive that gift through faith. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your goodness. As we see this vision of the end, help us not to miss that the best thing about it is that you are there. In all of your fullness, Father, with your people. And so, Father, we pray that as difficulties come, as things happen in our lives that cause us to doubt your goodness or that distract us from the joy that you offer us in your presence, Father, we pray 
that you would steer our minds to the end. That we might look forward to that which awaits those who have trusted in Christ. And we pray, Father, for those that have never received this gift. Father, we pray that you would turn them from outsiders to insiders. And that they might receive that gift through faith in Christ. We thank you, Father, for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.